Welcome to the Social Housing Podcast from Voicecape, the only podcast dedicated to helping social landlords build sustainable tenancies. During this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to leaders from the social housing sector and beyond, hopefully challenging the status quo a little bit, and also stimulating discussion around how technology can be better utilised to help build sustainable tenancies. I'm your host, John Doyle, the Chief Exec and Founder of VoiceGate. Therefore, I declare that Andy Burnham is duly elected as the Mayor of the Greater Manchester Combined Our guest today is Andy Burnham, the first elected Mayor of Greater Manchester who has been serving since 2017. He is known as a passionate supporter of the social housing sector and the fact that VoiceScape is based in Manchester gives me twice the pleasure to invite him as our guest today. Welcome Andy, how are you doing? I'm okay John, how are you? I'm very good thanks, I'm very good. Can't wait to get into all subjects social housing but before I do that, one of my colleagues earlier today, who's lived in Manchester all his life, he asked me, what's the difference between, you know, Andy Burnham as a mayor and the usual guys with the chains? So I thought, <laughs> well, it's interesting that's still out there, isn't it? So I thought what I'd do to start with is ask if you could just give us a bit of a, a talk around that, but at the same time, lay out what you see as your broader mission as the mayor. Yeah, so I'm um, part of a... I guess a new breed of, of mayor, not the ceremonial mayor. You know, that's the the old historic sort of position of people who have the casting vote on the council. But I think very much uh, in a ceremonial position, a hangover from days gone by. The mayor role that I have is uh, what's called a metro mayor. So it's a metropolitan area. In our case, ten boroughs, two point eight million people, and it's an executive role, decision making role. So. It is very different, and I think this word mayor gets used so much now because it can be the leader of a council, or it can be a ceremonial mayor. So people are understandably becoming confused. But um, the, the role that I um, occupy is, is that sort of strategic, conurbation-wide decision-making role. And uh, uh, new in England in many ways, obviously we've had a mayor in London for 20 years. Uh, mayor of Greater Manchester, the office of the mayor is what? coming up for four years old, same in Liverpool, same in Birmingham. I think, though, people are beginning to understand the role of the mayors, and maybe that's come a bit more to the fore this year with everything that's been happening during the, uh, during the pandemic. If you go abroad, if you go to the US, the role of the mayor there is very, very understood in terms of running, you know, running those big cities. So um, I think England's got some catching up to do here. Most other parts of the world have a very strong system of regional and local governance, and in this country we're a bit... We're a bit London-centric, aren't we? A bit white Westminster-centric with the way we do things. Yeah, just a bit. We'll, we'll come on to that in, in due course. I've got to ask you, the white paper on housing came out today. Have you had a chance to have a look at it? I appreciate you busy. Have you seen anything of it? I, do you know, I haven't, John, just because we've had a, a, a series of meetings today back-to-back on pandemic-related matters. So it's, okay. you know, it's, it's, I don't get the chance to read white papers during the day. It's normally weekend reading, so I will probably catch up with it on Saturday or Sunday. But uh, I was, I'll ask you a question. How do you feel about it? <laughs> well, it's nothing if not entertaining, okay? 
I mean, it's an interesting read. I've not read it end to end. I've had a, I've had a bit of a scan. The foreword is entertaining because Boris regales us with a tale of him visiting a council flat in Wolverhampton in the late 80s, damp and rising damp and condensation. And it, it obviously really struck him to his heart. He really remembers it. And I, I was thinking, I wonder what that poor family living in that council flat, <laughs> what impression it's left on them. Did he explain why he was going or was this left oh, unclear? <laughs> no, it, 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 was, it was there. This is a cracker. He was there as a cub reporter. I'm assuming that's like a, a junior reporter, but that might be an Etonianism, I'm not sure, cub reporter. The second page is also really interesting because it's actually got a picture of the current housing minister, um, quite brave. There's a picture next to his name. And we have had quite a lot of housing ministers over the last 10 years, most of them nameless, faceless and useless. But at least Robert Jenrick, we can now see his name see his face so it's not too bad so yeah it's entertaining let me tell you i was just going to ask, more seriously i was wondering andy did you have any expectations have you got any expectations what will be in it and is there anything that you particularly wanted to be in it i'd like it to free us up to get building and take away some of the um the shackles to be honest you know the country needs more social housing so free organizations up like mine to to build it, either ourselves or working in, in partners. They just need to get the Treasury's grip off the whole off the whole system and free us up to build because um, you know we know the sites, we know the partners, our registered social landlords, you know, we, we would get on with it if they freed us up and put the funding and the borrowing permissions in place. And it's frustrating, John, that um, you know it's it's so um, controlled by the Treasury. And I think you know that has slowed slowed the pace of the pace of change over the last uh, two or three decades okay well moving off the white paper in a moment the last point i'd make is quite interesting point it's got bullet points point 146 it really struck me because this is in the white paper today it puts as a statement of fact it's statistics so i don't know how factual they are but it says between april 2010 and march 2019 local authorities built a total of 26,100 properties, social properties. That's what it says in there for nine years. Interestingly, there was an article in The Guardian this week where they were looking at it from another perspective, so more the housing associations rather than just the local authorities. And they were decrying the fact that in 2020, understandable with the pandemic, but in 2020, only 34,000 new social properties were built nationally. Yeah. And as a consequence, they reckon the waiting list for housing next year is going to double in time. Yeah. And when you hear some of the statements that have been made historically over the last few years, half a million houses, million houses, there's some fantastic numbers pushed out there about what the country needs. It's really sobering within the space of a week to see those kind of numbers. Yeah. It's probably just not the last decade either, if we're honest. I, I've criticised the government that I was in for not building enough uh, homes for social rent. It was only the very end of the Labour government where they started to kind of do a bit more of this, uh, John Denham and John Healy. But to be honest with you, you're talking probably three decades of this, aren't you, since the 1980s, where we've had right to buy, we've lost uh, stock, and it hasn't been uh, replaced. And the consequences are a housing crisis yeah. where people can't, afford to find their place within 
within that, that, that housing ecosystem. So I think it's it goes beyond one government. I think yeah. it's all political parties have got culpability. I think it's been a long-term um, kind of problem that no one has corrected. And I think rather than just quoting these big numbers, as you're saying, you know, this many tens of thousands, but this is that the housing debate really suffers from that. Actually, yeah. I've, I've noticed. There's never been a housing minister or you know somebody who knew a great deal about housing policy before coming into this role as mayor. It really suffers from a kind of a quantitative approach rather than a qualitative approach to the discussion of, of housing. I think you need to express it more in terms of people. I I would like to see us express our goal as a country in terms of everybody is able to afford. A, a decent safe place to call home that's what we should be trying to do and the numbers come secondary to it don't they rather yeah, than yeah. Bit throwing out a random number and then if you've got the right goal at the start then everything else should should follow from that okay a bit closer to home it's quite interesting living in manchester living around manchester and seeing the programs like manctopia and all of this plethora of you know, high-rise, modern, private accommodation. In that context, in the latest version of the Greater Manchester Spatial um, GS, what does the F stand for? GMSF? Framework. Framework, that's the one, yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the, the leaders proposed land for 35,000 homes, was it? And I was just wondering what the allocation there might be for affordable social, call it what you will. Well, the, the Spatial Framework has a, a plan for 50,000 truly right. affordable homes so when we say truly what we mean is a, to a, def, a greater manchester definition of affordability thirty thousand of which homes for social rent so that's why i said before vis-a-vis the white paper i hope it's going to free us up because I, I would want to to get going on that you know and if that means greater manchester combined authority becoming more of a commissioner or even a builder of those you know I, i'm open to all all kinds of options but yeah we have a serious a serious plan and it and it does relate to some of those criticisms of how housing in greater manchester has um, become out of reach of some people in, in recent times the, the buildings you see that were featured in the program were funded by um, the greater manchester housing investment loans fund which was set up by george osborne and that was very much a, a scheme that was about unlocking some of the, the schemes that were clearly on the stocks in central manchester so they were just on the borderline of viability and the fund to be fair has opened all of that up what the programme didn't explain was some of the, the loans as they're repaid will be recycled to the boroughs of Greater Manchester to help right. us build those 30,000 uh, homes. So, you know, it's a, it's a bigger story than just what's happened to the city centre. I, I suppose, just as a, an aside, I read an article in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago talking more about London, so we're a little bit off track from where we are, but it was making the point that a lot of those developments that are going up there are regarded by the funders almost as safety deposit boxes in the sky. They're not looking to put renters in there. It's just with interest rates being as low as they are, returns being hard to find, they're just seeing them as, you know, let's stick our money in property and leave it lying idle, which is about as ridiculous as it can get in a country where we're short of houses, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And this is why, you know, English housing as a, a kind of policy area needs root and branch reform because it's not working for, for everybody. The systems that you're describing are not, are not building homes that people can afford. So, you know, I, I um, there's a market for that kind of um, yeah. development, clearly, but it can't be the only thing, and often it is the, on, the only thing. And um, kind of despair a little bit, really, about housing housing policy because, you know, we've we've kind of got our heads into a place where we're saying the market will provide something for everybody, but it isn't, is it? It really yeah. isn't. 
And if you take away that, that social rent component of the market and leave the whole thing to private rented or buy to let, it isn't going to look after a large chunk of the population. And there, there are then quite serious social consequences that fall, that fall out uh, from that. Is there anything you've been particularly proud of thus far as mayor? I mean, I appreciate it sounds like you're operating to a degree with your hands tied from, from Westminster, but on the housing front, is there anything that you can say, yeah, under my stewardship, this has got better, or is it still very much a work in progress? Well, the, house, the housing powers I've got are quite limited. But when I came in, I did say I would do something about rough sleeping. I, I said I would make that a personal uh, priority. So if we go back to the mayoral election in 2017, it was an issue that was rising rapidly up the agenda because we were just seeing the numbers increasing almost week on week. And I'd become, as a backbench MP, I'd become more and more worried about, uh, about levels of rough sleeping. So I said I would end rough sleeping in Greater Manchester by 2020, which was uh, a bold claim and remains a bold claim. But actually on the, on the official count last year, we'd got pretty much halfway towards that. So we reduced it for getting close to 50%. And, you know, today there are just over 100 people sleeping rough on the streets in Greater Manchester. It was 300 if you go back, uh, you know, to the start of, um, of my time in office. So by no means perfect. It was a big challenge to take on. You know, the pandemic's not made it any easier. But tonight in Greater Manchester, 480 people will be in a scheme called A Bed Every Night, which is a scheme which I set up, which is kind of difficult to fund, but I, I, I am finding a way of funding it with help from the National Health Service in Greater Manchester. And it's truly groundbreaking, I think, uh, what, that is, what that is doing. So, you know, I, I have some pride, actually, about what we've done on rough sleeping, particularly. We've established a housing first scheme with the government support as a pilot. And I was checking today before this, this podcast, we are getting a really high rate of people sustaining tenancies, uh, almost 90%, which is amazing, actually, which again says something about the quality of what's been, what's been built there. So, yeah, I, I've, I've got some pride about those things. But, um, you know, I, yeah, there's lots of other areas where I'd like to have seen more progress too. Okay, can I, can I ask you, do you see, at a strategic level, do you see social landlords and social housing being a key component of that drive to reduce rough sleeping? Yes, and they have been. They've been brilliant, actually. Right. So from day one, you know, the, the GM housing providers, because they organise themselves as a, as a group, we're, we're right there straight away. How can we help? What can we do? So they've been absolutely brilliant, and I can't thank them enough. So we originally had a forerunner of Housing First called the Social Impact Bond, and we worked with uh, Shelter on that, and that too was really successful. And then they've obviously helped with properties for that. They've been helping with properties for Housing First. So they've been great partners, and have now set up something called the Ethical Lettings Agency. It's called Let Us. So that's where they work with uh, private landlords who want their homes to be rented according to more, let's say, social uh, housing principles. And Let Us, the, the Ethical Lettings Agency, is really now beginning to build its portfolio and is, again, part of the mix of things we need to reset the housing market in Greater Manchester. It will take time, John, so I don't think you can do these things overnight. No. But, um, you know, that was very much an initiative of our housing providers. You know, they very much made the case that they wanted to do that. And um, it's really beginning to deliver results. Okay, I was just wondering... As part of the, has anything been learned on the, you know, from the regional handling of the, of the COVID crisis 
that might actually help housing providers going forward. What, what do you see, looking into 2021, what, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges they've got? Well, I think the big point, like I hope, hopefully everybody's learned this year, is the kind of intrinsic importance of housing to people's health. If you haven't got a home that promotes your health and well-being, that allows you to isolate with enough space to do so if you are uh, symptomatic, you know, that's not overcrowded. I mean, it's at the heart of everything, isn't it? And, and I think maybe that, that point has been understood better now than, uh, than it, it would be understood in normal times. You know, the parts of the country that have been hit hardest by COVID are not exclusively, but largely the, the places where the housing is poorest and actually where the employment is low wage uh, insecure so you know that picture is very stark actually if you if you look at it now and i i hope that people can um can can see that perhaps more clearly than they could before housing in my mind needs to be seen differently than almost like the market will provide you know decent safe housing as i was saying needs to be that everyone's right and i think we need to start thinking of it in those terms you know a, a human right yeah. Uh, in UK law, rather than just something that's sort of discretionary good that the market may or may not provide. On that point, Andy, do you see other regions of the country where you look and think they're doing something better or they're doing something worse? Or is it a fairly standard MO across the piece? Feels fairly standard to me because of the change that we've all suffered in recent years. But then I do look at uh, Scotland and Wales with some envy, where they've been able to have sufficient levels of devolution to end right to buy. And if I can just tell you now that if we had the ability to do it, we would do the same. And so I do look enviously at, at uh, that, you know, because we would have, you know, I think someone was um, preparing me some figures, you know, we'd already would have saved thousands of homes for social rent if we'd have been able to, to do that at the same time as Scotland did it a few, a few years ago. So it is a bit frustrating to be able to, you know, look over there. That's what we mean by true devolution. You know, that's yeah. what it could, could bring. And it's frustrating to be trapped within a sort of a, a kind of Westminster model of housing policy that hasn't delivered. It just hasn't delivered for the northwest of England, and and yet we're still stuck within it. So, the the key for me is that freedom point I was talking about before. You know, give us real devolved freedom and flexibility over housing policy, because I'm I'm certain we could do a better job than Westminster housing policy has done over the last few decades. I'm sure you could. It's interesting because I was going to ask you what you'd do if you had a superpower or a, a devolved power. I think we've got the answer there in terms of... Yeah, you know. bigger than that, though. I've been, I went to Finland last year because I was really interested in what they were doing on homelessness. And you know, I, went, I went to see Housing First, which I thought was a project when I went to sort of see what they were doing. It turned out that Housing First is more of a national philosophy, you know, that everything comes from good housing, basically, yeah. is, is that finnish philosophy which is accepted by all government departments you know the central importance of good housing and if i had that magic wand you know i would have a housing first philosophy in greater manchester or indeed uh, across across england i think it should be a a human right in uk law the great nye bevan was minister of state for housing and health after the second world war because i think it was understood by them that those two things were kind of almost indivisible really they were two yeah. two sides of the same coin and um, somewhere along the line the link between housing and health got broken in Whitehall and became very sort of um, remote well I think we've got to kind of 
out coming out of this pandemic, get the two things right back together again. You know, if you want to help the communities that, that most need help, if you want to level up the country, you would go straight to the communities that have been hardest hit by COVID and you would start building 21st century zero carbon social housing in those communities. Brilliant. Let me remind you of something. I, I didn't meet you, but I saw you presenting keynote speech at the Northern Housing Awards back in 2018. We, we won an award that night. I just thought I'd get that in. Gotcha. But what, what you spoke passionately about was the idea of converting unused town centre retail into much needed sort of social housing and affordable housing. And funnily enough, there was an article last week in the Yorkshire Evening Post or something by Nick Atkin, who's the chief executive of Yorkshire Housing, talking about exactly the same thing. And it just reminded me in advance of this podcast, you know, it was a great idea then. And let's face it, high street retail is not going to be recovering anytime soon. And I don't care which high street you go down, there are basically 50% of all of the units to let. I'm just wondering about that idea. As it's, is it something that's got any traction? Have you had any luck with it? Is it? Is there any appetite anywhere for that? It's certainly got traction. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, um, a generation of, sort of rabbit hutch accommodation in outdated shops. I'm talking about levelling some of those old shopping precincts of the 50s, 60s and 70s and turning over the use of that land for residential purposes as, a, as opposed to retail. Because as you say, the retail isn't coming back anytime soon, if, if ever. And I think the time has come to rethink our, our sort of towns, our, our outlying towns. The, the benefit of building in, in town centres is you, you breathe new life into those places, which is often what local residents really, really crave. You know, they want a sense of civic pride and you know, to see the places being, being uh, re renewed. You, you're building for public transport rather than the car, yeah. uh, because obviously the, you know, the, the public transport interchanges tend to be in the heart of those, of those places. And because of the nature of the developments, you're probably building higher density, more affordable housing. Again, you know, the problem we've had in this country is we've kind of let the market decide. And when, if you leave the market to decide, it will go straight to the big green sites alongside the, the big strategic routes. And it will build semi-detached or detached commuter homes on, on green fields. Uh, what you've got to do is, is say to the housing industry, no, we want you to build something different. We want you to innovate and come with us and be a partner in the re regeneration of, of um, um, well, you could name any, any towns across, yeah. uh, across Greater Manchester. Daly Bridge is an obvious example, uh, one of our towns that we wanted to, to work with. Farmworth, Lee, where I used to represent, Swinton. You've got a lot of outlying towns that are ripe for, for, for that kind of rethinking. And, you know, I, 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 yes, there is some progress, we have a Stockport Mayoral Development Corporation now, which is you know, a master planning exercise that is looking to build 3,500 homes beneath those famous railway arches in, in yeah. Stockport. So maybe that's a template there that other, other places can use. But, but yeah, if anything, the, the idea is only more relevant now post-pandemic, I would say, given the impact uh, on some of our, our, our traditional high streets. Brilliant. Now, I appreciate you, you're busy, Andy, so I won't keep you much longer. Just one final question I wanted to ask. It's a real simple one, but it's how do we keep affordable, sustainable? What you've just said there about if you get the if you leave it to the free market, what are the free market builders for the bill for profit? It's their fiduciary duty to make a return for the shareholders. 
So the market is not going to solve it. As you said, it never has, it never will. What do we do? How do we move it forward? And let's assume in that white paper, there was a clause at the bottom that gave you the, the devolved powers you need. How do you kick off? Well, I think what you're saying, if we, if we take the word sustainable also from a climate perspective, yeah. I think affordable is sustainable because if you, let's, let's say, for instance, we were to now get going with a retrofitting programme on all of the existing properties of Greater Manchester to convert them, put the insulation in and the, uh, the solar panels and the, you know, to make them zero carbon. They're obviously then much cheaper to, to run, aren't they, as homes than, than they are uh, if you don't do that. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it is more affordable for people to have a more sustainable, uh, sustainable home. But as you say, that isn't going to happen probably if you, if, you, if you leave it purely to the market. It's got to be a, a best, well, at least, sorry, I should say, a public-private vehicle that, that kickstarts a, a scheme of that kind you know puts in some of the upfront investment to get to get that to, to get that change you know I, i've set a goal in greater manchester of a zero carbon city region by 2038 as part of that the greater manchester spatial framework sets 2028 for all new buildings zero carbon before they get planning permission so the market's going to have to change you know, and we're trying to change the market by introducing some of those policies but i i definitely think now coming out of the pandemic, we need to focus on housing more because housing, as I say, builds health. And also it can build prosperity, can't it? There are, there are jobs to be had yeah. for young people retrofitting those properties uh, that, we've, uh, that we've got. We need to be training a generation of young people in modern methods of construction, those, uh, those building those zero carbon homes. This seems to me to be the obvious time to do all of that. You know, we're going to be struggling, if you like, with redundancy and unemployment so why not create thousands of new jobs for um for young people in that whole in that whole area of improving our homes retrofitting our homes and actually then making them more affordable for people with regard to the uh the energy bills going going forward it seems to be a win-win to me and um we need to be freed up to do it yeah you took the words right out of my mouth there andy i think exactly what you were describing there sounded to me just like a win-win so Good luck with that. Good luck with further devolution. And thank you very much for joining us today. It's been great to have you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. If you are new to the Social Housing Podcast, please subscribe if you're listening via Apple Podcasts or leave a follow if you use Spotify. Also, please remember to leave us any feedback, good, bad or ugly. It can only help serve improvers. Finally, I'd like to thank you all for your time and attention. I appreciate that everybody's busy, but I do hope you learned something from the experience. I certainly did. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Social Housing Podcast. Goodbye.